This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. The Times of India recently declared artificial intelligence is one of the most exciting disruptive technologies to have emerged in recent years. Though AI is often linked to the automation of jobs, it can also be used to make our daily lives easier. That sounds pretty chipper. IBM described AI this way. Artificial intelligence leverages computers and machines to mimic the problem-solving and decision-making capabilities of the human mind. And yet, even outlets like the BBC are beginning to discuss the dangers of AI. The network stated, if you believe some AI watchers, we are racing towards the singularity, a point at which artificial intelligence outstrips our own and machines go on to improve themselves at an exponential rate. If that happens, And it's a big if. What will become of us? In the last few years, several high-profile voices from Stephen Hawking to Elon Musk and Bill Gates have warned that we should be more concerned about possible dangerous outcomes of super smart AI. Well, for Christians, there's something else we ought to think about. What are the dangers of letting artificial intelligence potentially eclipse the true God. We're going to talk about that today with Wallace Henley. He's a former White House and congressional aide who served 18 years as a teaching pastor at Second Baptist Church in Houston. He is now serving at Grace Church in the Woodlands, Texas, and is out with a new book we'll be discussing, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? The Looming Spiritual Crisis of Artificial Intelligence. Wallace, it's great to talk to you again. How are you doing? Janet, it's wonderful to speak to you. Thank you. You bet. Well, a lot of people will say, hey, this is great. You know, computers are going to make our lives easier. AI is a good development. What is your overall take on artificial intelligence? There's good, there's bad, but you've got some concerns. My overall take is that we've got to keep the artificial in artificial intelligence. We've got to maintain the understanding that this is not some organic being. In fact, we above all must understand that this is not a substitute for God. One of the scholars that I quote from in in my new book on this is Dr. John Lennox of MIT. He says, the quest for upgrading humans, creating superintelligence and, and godhood is very ancient and in its contemporary form dressed up in the language of advanced computer technology and very alluring. That's what I'm concerned about. Right. So when you talk about this concept of singularity, this is something that goes back to people like Ray Kurzweil and Werner uh, Vinge. Uh, He wrote a 1993 essay on the coming technological singularity, and he argued in that piece that the creation of superhuman AI will mark the point at which the human era will be ended, such that no current models of reality are sufficient to predict beyond it. But that is creepy. I mean, just as a basic reaction to the singularity, our old models have to be discarded and the human era will be ended. That doesn't sound very positive so far as humans are concerned. Do you think that there's any likelihood that they will achieve this dream, though? Well, science goes as far as science can go. It will always stretch to the limits. And so consequently, if it is possible to create an era like this, it will be created. It, it will be done. And anybody who stands in the way of it will be declared 
um, as anti-science and belonging back to the age of believing in a flat earth. So consequently, yes, it will. It will go forward to that if we don't wake up and understand what's happening. Well, what are some areas that AI is making inroads into our society right now? Well, obviously, we depend very much on Alexi, uh, Alexi and these other people, these other computerized voices to do all kinds of things for us. But my concern is, is the displacement of the sense of the transcendence of God. Yes. We are made for transcendence. We are, our, as, as, as St. Augustine said, our hearts were made by God, for God. Only God can fill them. And when we don't have God in that place, then we begin to make gods. And this is the whole story of idolatry. And so I wrote a book entitled, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? Because the reality is these devices will be seen by many and already are as a substitute for God. What propelled me to write this book is that a former Google engineer actually formed an AI church in California, and he seemed to be quite serious yeah. about this, that this is, this is ultimate. So, so in answer to your question, science will go as far as science can go with this, and that may even mean displacing the sense of the transcendence of God. Now, this is an interesting point, and I think a very significant point, that we are made for transcendence. We know God is both imminent and transcendent, and it is very much the story of human history that fallen men and women have made idols out of you know things that are of the earth and have not worshipped the true God as he deserves to have our worship. In what way, specifically, could artificial intelligence interfere with our sense of transcendence and, and in so doing, replace God effectively? How, how would that occur? Well, for one thing, it, it is the ultimacy of technology. So whatever is ultimate is the first issue in a worldview. Worldviews deal with about eight basic questions. I won't deal with them all, just the first. The number one question is, what is ultimate? in a person's worldview. What do we see as ultimate? And because people are learning to get information so quickly and on such a scale, and they're learning to extend their own knowledge, so rather than imago dei, we have imago machina, (laughs) which is the image of the machine in the human being. And it becomes so easy to to worship that, if you will, to worship that, that awesome mystery. My concern is not that this happened. It's going to happen. My concern is what kind of people are programming the ethical limits in the AI machines that are developing. Some of those machines, we already have some that have become self-reproductive. So some of these machines must have at some point, all of them must have at some point, if they're going to be free-thinking machines, they're going to have to have some border, some boundary that says this is wrong, and this is right. What happens when the machine does a profound analysis on the whole problem of the planet and decides that human beings are the problem on the planet <laughs> and that they have to go? What, who's programming these machines right. and what kind of values are being programmed into them? Well, that's, that's really the crux of it. And w- here's another question. Why would man, and I understand on some level the answer to this question, but why would man want to invent himself out of dominion over creation? In other words, there are some of these inventors and some of these people on the singularity train are very excited about the possibility that the human era will be ended. Well, 
that would affect them as well. They're human beings. What What is that mentality that says we want machines to become so powerful that we'll be less relevant than they are? What? Why? Why do they want that? Well, the machine is, is all about displacing God. And so they're in the human heart that has no room for God, for the transcendence of God, there's always this idea that progress is the holy grail, right. and whatever obscures progress is sin. Therefore, we don't want to be judged by our peers. We might not win the Nobel Prize. Yes. We don't want to be judged by our peers as being anti-progress. So consequently, we will do whatever we can do, even if it kills us, even if it removes us from the planet. In my book, uh, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods, I have a chapter on, on Einstein and what happens when Einstein begins to realize the potential for the atomic bomb. Yes. And, it, of course, it's in, 19, in the 1940s, and, and, and World War II is going on. So, so one of the major things that Einstein does is to write President Roosevelt and say, you need to be aware of what has become possible all of a sudden. Well, without that sense of caution... Uh, even though Einstein was a profound scientist who did want to take the science wherever it went. Nevertheless, he was also a man of qualitative thinking. Mm -hmm. We live in an era of quantitative thinking. How much information can we uh, crush into one of these machines? How much information can we milk out of one of these machines? And at some point, if we become obstructive of that, then that's the point at which we say humanity has to go. Wow, that is very scary to consider, but there's a lot more to consider. We're going to take a short pause and come back with Wallace Henley. His book is called Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? The Looming Spiritual Crisis of Artificial Intelligence. Back in a moment on Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to bible believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Over the past several weeks, I've been thrilled to see so many of you step up to rescue over 75 families through the ministry of Heart for Lebanon. Thank you for providing survival essentials. But most importantly, we're grateful that you've helped share the hope of the gospel with hurting refugee and poverty-stricken Lebanese families. If you didn't get a chance to participate, please know the need in Lebanon remains urgent. It's never too late to give. Visit heartforlebanon.org to find out more. That's heartforlebanon.org. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. And it's great to have with us Wallace Henley, his book, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? The Looming Spiritual Crisis of Artificial Intelligence is the focus of our discussion. And what an important discussion. Wallace, you know what really strikes me when we're talking about the goals of the artificial intelligence community and they want to see this singularity, at least some of them do. uh, It's all very exciting. But I, I was considering the whole issue of idolatry and putting your faith in man ultimately instead of your faith in God. We have so many people in our culture right now, and we see this during the course of the pandemic, who are absolutely unwilling to do anything but blindly follow the science. But it's not the science necessarily that they're following. It's the people who are advocating for whatever they're dubbing science, because clearly there are rules to science. You can't just say, as Anthony Fauci said, I represent science and just make a declaration like that without backing it up. Does that condition people, would you think, along with Darwinian evolution and and the worship of, oh, if if you don't believe in Darwinian evolution, you're not somebody who believes in science, which is not true from history. Christians, some of the best scientists in history have been Christians. Does that set up the population, though, this, this kind of unchecked faith in science for spiritual disaster when artificial intelligence rolls out because they're so enamored with, look how cool this is. We've got to go down this path. What are your thoughts on the spiritual condition of people as they're evaluating AI? Maybe not, they're not evaluating maybe as much as they should. When we forget true transcendence, which is what my book is about, what happens is that we accept other authoritarians. Right. And this whole schematic Uh, I don't think it is intentionally designed that way, except maybe in some madman somewhere, uh, high on some mountain, unreachable. But nevertheless, when we come to that point, we we begin to try to create our own transcendence, and we become subject to the authoritarians. Yes. And that is my major concern. We we were made for the transcendent, but the the true transcendence of God is that which is, is couched in love. And it's couched in engagement, yes. uh, engagement for good. It's couched in the character of God. So when you speak of the transcendence of the machine, it is almost impossible to talk about the qualitative. You can only talk about the quantitative. How, how, how many gigabytes can we, can we pack into this thing? How much uh, information can it spit out at a given time? How much, how many? All of these are the issues. Now, there are some other there are some secular writers who have who've begun to wake up to this. Um, Juval is one of them, and I quote these people because they're beginning to understand. Wait a minute, there's a there's a there's a, qu- a quantitative aspect to this, but what is the qualitative, and what determines that qualitative issue? When I know that God calls me to righteousness, God calls me to relationship, loving relationship with Himself and others. It has a different impact on my life. Yes. But how is that programmed into a machine? You see, you and I can do that because we have a spirit as well as a soul and a body. 
and the soul is mind, emotion, and will. So to some extent, the machine will have something of a soul. It will certainly have mind, and it will certainly have a will. It also has a body. But where is the spirit? How does, how does the Holy Spirit interface with the spirit of the machine? These are questions that are critical to the future of the human race. Right, and it strikes me as well that what human beings have is a conscience. I mean, how in the world do you equip a machine with a conscience? Go this far and no further. I guess you could program it to do this particular act and not another, but at the event, in the event that it kind of gets out of control, there's nothing reigning in a machine. This, the, again, this is an important point you're making in your book. We are created in the image of God. Machines are not. That right there is a problem. And as you said, I think very wisely, when we reject the true God, we end up following other authoritarians. But the thing is about it, Wallace, these authoritarians don't have ultimate authority. That, that's where it gets down to the, you know, the brass tacks of the whole thing. That is, the, that, that is the scary thing. Their only authority is to themselves and to the worldview. I have a chapter in the book called The View from the Valley. And in that chapter, I analyze the worldview uh, that that exists in in uh, in, uh, in in the in the valley where uh, in California, uh, where we talk about all these things coming from, and and the kinds of worldviews that drive the people who are creating these machines. And their accountability is is to themselves. It is to the market. Um, it is to whatever whatever is allowable technologically. But what about the qualitative, qualitative as, aspect? Right. Let's take this issue that you mentioned right from the beginning, which is the dominion of the human being over creation as opposed to the dominion of the machine. Yes. Remember, that dominion was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Right. So they were to take the nature of God, the transcendent God, and he said, I want you to scatter out across this world, out across this place that I've created. And I want you to take that character. I want you, I want you to take that wor- those works into that world, not as a mastery, not as some kind of authoritarian force or, a, or, or an exploited force. I want you to take it in the world as people reflecting my holy character. That's the quantitative. Uh, qualitative. And that's what's missing in all of these discussions about the looming power of artificial intelligence. Well, that's that's well said. And you had mentioned before the AI church and, and you mentioned in the book about techno religions and the likelihood that techno religions will take a greater you know form of power over the earth, which you can completely envision. Some of this sounds like science fiction, but we're not that far off from a lot of this stuff. What would this world look like? If AI church and techno religions really got hold of most of the population, what, what then? It would be a world that would be based on utility. Utility would be enthroned as the highest value. Utility is one of the prime uh, worldviews that, that I discuss in, uh, in, in, in what rules in the valley, Silicon Valley. Utilitarianism would mean a religion that okays, and this is really, really uh, frightening, it would okay the, the destruction of anything that did not have utility or that would lead to utility. Yeah. So let's go back to the Second World War. Adolf Hitler says that what he wants to do is to be the partner of Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. And since the strongest survived, the best thing to do to purify the human race would be to remove any that do not add to, in some way, the quantitative utility of the human race. Yes. And the Jewish race, in his mind, was certainly a hampering of that, as well as homosexuals, and as well as 
as people who were defective in some way as judged by him. So, so this world would be, however, a much colder world. Um, Hitler was a bumbling uh, man as he went through this process, and the Nazis were bumbling as they went through this. It was sloppy. It was dirty. But this utility will be so smooth, it will be almost like inviting people to sacrifice themselves for the good of utility in this world. And the people who will be valued and exploited will be those who give themselves, if you will, to this new transcendent power that defines the ultimate in ethics and the ultimate in morality. And that will change as well. Morality and ethics, the boundaries will come down. Whatever adds to the pleasure of this system uh, will be crowned as holy and righteous. It will be part of the great catechism, if you will, of the new age. Yeah, and as you mentioned, Hitler, you look around this culture and you can see signs that people are going in this direction, not not to do a Holocaust again necessarily, but th- this wrong thinking on utilitarianism, because you look, for example, at somebody like Peter Singer, the ethicist, who just got an award, an ethics award of all things. This is a man who has advocated for the euthanasia of the disabled, uh, the mentally ill. Uh, he has talked about the fact that it's not out of bounds for parents to exterminate their own newborns if they have disabilities. I mean, this guy is a horror show ideologically. Uh, he's not killing people, but he, he advocates some very, very ghoulish things that we've seen in history before. This kind of you know, indifference to human life and the, the value of a human life is created in the image of God. This is what really scares me, Wallace. This is really where the spiritual crisis hits, because when you have people who, as you mentioned before with Einstein, was a scientist with a conscience, if you have ethicists and technological experts without a conscience, they will impose their worldview as they introduce all of this artificial intelligence. That is what really seems to be the scary part here. Yes, and I think Peter Singer is probably a poster boy for that future world. Yeah. Uh, where where everything is about utility. But look, we're moving that way. The great discussion before the Supreme Court about when is there viability. Yes. And the whole discussion about viability is a frightening discussion because it means the court will establish the point at which a human being is a human being. It already has in some ways. Uh, and that's why that's why we're seeking reform in the, in the laws about abortion. But But the point is that utility will be the crowning thing. If you can't provide utility, then, then you can go away. The, the Bible cl- is clear, Psalm 139, that, that life begins at conception. Yes. Life is viable, whether it's mechanically viable or not. In the eyes of God, that person exists. That God has knit that person in the mother's womb. And that, that Judeo-Christian understanding has, has, has kept us going through many a century. In the Roman world, prior to the incursion of Christianity and that worldview, um, it was a slaughterhouse uh, for anyone who did not measure up to the idea uh, that, uh, that, that they held about what was viable human life. So think of a world in which any boundaries on viability had been completely knocked down. Anybody could be killed at any point in life, and you begin to have, again, some sense, which means we've got to have, we'll have to have more laws. We'll have to have more regulations. So therefore, the next thing that happens is a powerfully regulatory government that is not just seeing to it that people prosper, but seeing to it that people think right yes. and act right according to the government. One of the things that I've learned in my life, especially working in the White House for three years, 
is that power is the fundamental temptation, not uh, some of the things we think. Some of the things we think uh, emerge from that, that yielding to power. So true. Wallace Henley, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods, the name of his book. Thank you so much, Wallace. God bless you, and thanks for being with us. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Speaking of artificial intelligence, did you see this story over the weekend? The world's first living and self replicating robots reproduce like Pac Man. <laughs> no, you're not watching the Sci Fi Channel. The U.S. scientists who created the first living robots say the life forms known as xenobots can now reproduce and in a way not seen in plants and animals. This is according to CNN. Formed from the stem cells of the African clawed frog, xenobots are these teeny little creatures less than a millimeter wide. They were first unveiled last year after experiments showed that they could move and work together in groups and self-heal. Scientists are said to be astounded by this. It reminds me of Jurassic Park a little bit. One of the lead people on this study is a computer scientist professor and robotics expert at the University of Vermont by the name of Josh Bongard and said it's a robot, but it's also clearly an organism made from genetically unmodified frog cell. Bongard said they found that the xenobots, which were initially sphere shaped and made from around 3000 cells, could replicate, but it happened rarely and only in specific circumstances. But with the help of artificial intelligence, the researchers tested billions of body shapes to make the xenobots more effective at a different type of replication. They came up with a Pac-Man type of shape. They found it was able to find tiny stem cells in a Petri dish, gather hundreds of them inside its mouth. And a few days later, the bundle of cells became new xenobots. Nothing to see here, folks. Don't worry about it. Artificial intelligence will be the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind. Nope, it won't. This is creepy. You know, the the whole line from Jurassic Park, uh, from Jeff Goldblum in that famous scene, he said, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. We are living proof that if you can do something, there doesn't seem to be anything stopping people from going ahead and doing it because even with ethicists like Peter Singer abounding, you can understand ethics are up in smoke these days and it's just unbelievable what's going on. So keep an eye on the artificial artificial intelligence developments. Now, I want to talk about the family a little bit during this segment and the next segment too because there's a lot going on. I found this article over at Christian Today uh, and it was referencing an interview with Premier Christianity. This is over in the UK. There is a woman over there by the name of Jane Ozan, who is a leading campaigner and member of the Church of England's General Synod, who apparently left the government's LGBT advisory panel because of its inaction on so-called conversion therapy. Now, I have said this till I'm blue in the face. 
this whole phrase conversion therapy that they use over here as well is just propaganda. They, they try to make out anybody who wants to seek help for unwanted same-sex attraction as being exploited and abused and it, it's all just heinous behavior and people are being electrocuted and, and forced to do heinous things. And it's not true. And it, we've been through this a million times. There were some very unfortunate bad practices taking place about 60, 70 years ago. Nobody's doing them now. They just want to get rid of any moral argument against homosexuality. So here comes Jane Ozan and Andrea Williams from Christian Concern wrote this article. And in this other article where Jane Ozan is quoted, this is just unbelievable. The question and answer was this. Here's the question posed to her. You have people saying my deep religious conviction as a same-sex attracted Christian is to live what they would call a celibate life. And you're saying prayers in that regard are to be made illegal? Jane Ozan says, yes, because it is damaging and lives are at stake. Well, first of all, I think of the line people have joked about when they took prayer out of public schools and they said, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in public schools, not to make light of prayer whatsoever. But prayer is something that the school can't stop you from doing because you can pray silently, of course. But who in the world gets so totalitarian that they want to ban prayer? Well, these people. These people, of course, they want to ban prayer. The totalitarian impulse of the age is extremely strong and it comes out in all kinds of ways. It comes out with you know, COVID-19 concentration camps in Australia where they're they're quarantining people for COVID-19 and hauling them off and saying, if you don't wear a mask here, there and everywhere, you're going to be fined. And I mean, that's totalitarianism of one type. And we've watched some of that unfold in the United States in different ways. But here we are, Jane Ozan, leading campaigner, member of the Church of England's General Synod, saying she wants prayer for same-sex attracted Christians, so-called, to be banned because it's damaging. I, I don't I don't think that's going to work. And Andrea says, we have here the totalitarian aims of those wanting a ban on conversion therapy, or in Ozan's words, conversion practices. They want to ban the most basic pressure-free sort of pastoral help for people who want to honor God with their sexuality. What are conversion practices? Conversion therapy, as Andrea points out, itself an inaccurate and unhelpful phrase invented by big gay activists is now being broadened and redefined in the UK debate as conversion practices. And this term covers everything from corrective rape to consensual prayer for sexual faithfulness. You can't pray for somebody to be faithful to the Lord. You know what? There's a point at which you say we will obey God and not man. This is that time. To some of us, she adds, this move was obvious for some time. There were no genuinely harmful practices taking place aimed at changing people's sexuality. These practices were either not practiced or were already clearly illegal. Yeah, same here. And she goes on to describe Ozan a little bit more, going to even further extremes in this interview. She claims that abstinence is damaging for same-sex attracted Christians and prayers with that goal should be banned in law. (laughs) Okay. She also considers consent irrelevant to the conversation, which is no surprise given that virtually every public testimony against conversion therapy is from someone who intentionally sought help and therefore consented to therapy at the time, but has since decided to embrace an LGBTQ lifestyle. Yeah, well, that's about right. So where is this all headed? 
the sexual liberation of the church. Now, the Church of England has been off the rails for a while on the rainbow flag stuff. They've been off the rails for for, for a long time. What concerns me as I'm reading a story like this is it just seems like everything starts over there and and we always end up imitating it. And and it's just disgusting to to watch the twisting and of scripture and and it's just so blasphemous. You know, it's not like you can get around what God's word says about male and female. It's not like you can get around the passages on homosexuality and God saying it's an abomination. Uh, you can be mad at God for saying that, uh, but you, you can't get mad at somebody for quoting the Bible. I mean, you can get mad at somebody for quoting the Bible, but there it is. And and the onus is on human beings submitting to the authority of God's word and believing his word as written because it comes from him. He is the word. How in the world can you start making up new sins or or going against ways of being obedient to the Lord that are clearly outlined in scripture? Because it's not about the Bible. It's Bible-free Christianity. It's about being culturally orthodox, not biblically orthodox. So where is it heading? The sexual liberation of the church. And the same stuff, as you know, is going on in the United States and it's going on in evangelicalism. And we know a big door was opened with the Revoice Conference back in 2018. Here's another quick little item for prayer. There's another story at the same site about Reverend Dr. Juhana Pajola, who is the Evangelical Lutheran Bishop in Finland. He's going on trial next month for expressing traditional Christian teaching on human sexuality. This is what it's coming to. He faces most likely, according to this interview, a fine, a hefty fine, but he also could face two years in jail for teaching what the Bible says about sexuality. In April, he was charged, along with another Christian Democrat MP by the name of Dr. Pivey Rossinen, with incitement against a group of people over the 2004 publication of a booklet describing sex outside of heterosexual marriage, including homosexual practice, is sinful. <laughs> so they're arresting pastors and bishops in Finland for teaching the Bible and threatening them with jail. And there's a whole interview that this guy does talking about it and saying, listen, Christians, you must be ready to pay the price for your beliefs. Again, we, we, this is not the first time we have brought this up, but I've always believed the, the smartest thing you can do as a Christian is extrapolate out into the future what could potentially be reality in a year or two or five or 10 years And make up your mind now to obey the Lord. Now. Not when the pressure hits, but before the pressure hits. And that's what we almost do. We're going to come back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. And now through a match, your gift is doubled. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Here's another shocking headline, this one from the Daily Mail. Just 18% of U.S. households are nuclear families with a married couple and children, which is down from 40% since is down 40% since the 1970s and the lowest number since 1959. It's crazy. Here's the story. The number of homes in America with a traditional nuclear family of a married couple with children is now at this lowest number in many, many years, over 50 years. The Census Bureau's count showed that 17.8% of the U.S.'s 130 million households featured married parents with children under the age of 18. That's only down from 18.6% last year but much more significantly from over 40% in 1970. It's crazy. There's currently just 23.1 million American homes with those nuclear families. The reasons given, the pandemic delays marriage, there's a continued decline in the birth rate. I mean, you can listen to all of these things, but we know there are so many other factors that are influencing these numbers. The average age of a woman at her first marriage is now 28.6 years. Back in the 50s and 60s, women typically married at 20. 20.4 years old. The average age for men to marry for the first time in 2021 was 30.4 years old. I would say part of the big, big problem here for a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s is how do you support yourself? The cost of living. Is, now look at the inflation rate. What is it? I Last number I saw was about 6.4%. When you have all of the taxes you have to pay, when you have all of the things that you have to buy in terms of just being able to live, you either have to rent an apartment or have a house and then you have to have a car, probably two cars if you have a married couple. You And granted, you can always cut back. You know, you think of previous generations who had way less than our generation has and it's possible to live on a lot less than most of us do for sure, but it's expensive. It's very expensive. And you have if you have kids, I don't have to tell you this. It's very expensive. If you ever want them to go to college, if you want them to be able to, you know, work at 16, that's fantastic. But 
boy, if you have more than two, three, four kids, now you're really talking about a very big expense. And for a lot of people, that's hard. A lot of these younger people are coming out of college with a ton of debt. So how in the world do you get ahead when you're coming out of college with a ton of debt? You'll be perpetually behind. And I just don't know when this whole thing explodes, but I'll tell you, the whole country suffers from this. The whole country suffers from this. When you can't have a man earning a living wage and the mom can stay home with the kids like it used to be, you can't do that anymore in many places. Not easily anyway. And that's a tragedy for the whole country because if you don't have strong families, you don't have a country for a long time, a strong country anyway. Your country falls apart. Look at the drug problems. Look at the problems in the schools, the problem with violence, the problems with, you know... Truancy, the problem. I mean, go go down the list with abortions and you know living together and all this stuff. And by the way, those numbers—not just to people living together outside of marriage, but also people living alone—those numbers keep going up, and the numbers of married couples keeps going down. It's only fifty percent now. Fifty percent. Over thirty-seven million adults lived alone in early twenty twenty-one, and that's up from thirty-three million ten years ago. And as far back as nineteen sixty. of adults lived with a spouse. You know, uh, I don't think that no-fault divorce idea was such a good idea back in the day. I don't think the sexual revolution has given us anything but total chaos and destruction of the family. And the kids are the ones who pay the price the most. Here's another study. This is interesting from Tim Gegline over at The Federalist. There's another study out finding single Americans want to get married but don't like their prospects. The number one reason cited by singles for not getting married in this study was what they perceived to be the difficulty in finding the right person to marry. Very interesting. This is a study by the Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute. Why are singles choosing not to get married and becoming more isolated? This is what he writes. While many assume that lack of money or having a stable job in today's economic uncertainty would be the main reasons people are choosing not to get married, they would be erroneous in doing so. Instead, the number one reason cited by singles for not getting married was what they perceive to be the difficulty in finding the right person to marry. Regardless of income, a vast majority of singles who desire marriage want their future spouse to be responsible, emotionally stable, and share the same values about having and raising children. He says, I would agree these are the traits one should be looking for in a future spouse and marrying someone who is not responsible or who is emotionally unstable or on the same page regarding parenting, Uh, not on the same page as far as parenting. He wrote it wrong. It's a recipe for marital disaster, clearly. But unfortunately, with the societal breakdown of the family and the lack of marital and parental role models available to young people today, Many singles are finding potential spouses with these traits harder to find. See, it affects everybody, even the singles who are ready to get married. Now they're saying, uh, OK, well, I can't, you know, I, you know, a young girl looking at a young guy going, this guy's completely, you know, he has no work ethic. He doesn't want to really take on the responsibility of a job. He'd rather just sit around and play video games. I don't want that guy. And who, who can blame her? And vice versa, if you have men looking at women who are just a train wreck, they don't want to get married to someone who's not going to act like an adult. 
again, you can talk about the juvenilization of America. That's a whole nother topic, but that's where these things come into play. These role models, Gagline says, are found in churches, strong families, and community organizations. And without them, which provide the nurturing environment, producing healthy, responsible, and stable adults, young men and women are finding it more difficult to find a suitable lifelong mate. And he makes the same point. Without strong families, it is difficult to find strong and secure adults. It is these institutions that promote the common good. I hate that phrase, but I know what he means. And personal responsibility, the very traits that most singles say they are looking for in a spouse. This is borne out by the second most cited reason for not getting married, not being ready for commitment. Not being ready for commitment, of which the percentage of men and women are nearly the same, 34% of men and 32% of women. Fear of commitment often is the result of experiencing broken relationships with a mom or dad at some time in your development or the lack of a loving, supportive community. In fact, 19% of both men and women surveyed said that fear of divorce was a primary reason they remained unmarried. Thus, these singles want to be married and make a lifelong commitment to a relationship, but they are scared off out of fear that it might not last, as they have seen played out too many times in our society, even in their own families. So it might not be the fear of getting married, but the fear of making the wrong decision and choosing a lifelong mate that is keeping people from getting married. And as a result... They become emotionally paralyzed about relationships. He says, when I talk with singles or with friends who are single for longer than they really wanted to be, that's the message that always seems to come through. The delay in getting married or not getting married at all also has profound consequences for our society. The longer marriage is delayed, the less likely likely couples are to have multiple children or any children at all. There's your decline in the birth rate. The result will be an increasingly aging society that doesn't have enough young taxpayers to support the entitlements of a rapidly growing older population. And this is a scenario for economic disaster for everybody. And finally, and I'm glad he brings this point into it, marriage is a stabilizing force for men, for women, and for children. As the survey points found, the number one trait people look for in a spouse is responsibility. When two people get married, their focus hopefully becomes on one another and the children they produce rather than on themselves. Self-gratification fades away as one sees beyond their own wants and instead concentrates on the needs of others. And for these reasons, it is essential we encourage and strengthen the very institutions that will produce healthy young adults who will become responsible spouses and parents. Institutions like the church and the family and community organizations. As Maggie Gallagher has written, something about marriage as a social institution, a shared aspiration and a public legal vow gives wedlock the power to change individuals' lives. By creating healthy environments that encourage marriage, singles can form stable, lifelong relationships and with that stability, strengthen our society in the short and long term as well. You know what I say? Do more trotting out of these older couples who have made it through 50 years or 60 years or 70 years of marriage. Sometimes you will see these stories in the press about these wonderful couples and people are amazed. And, you know, that didn't used to be that uncommon. But nowadays, people flip out if you're married 20 years. 20 years? You made it 20 years? Well, right. If you have something that is guiding you in your marriage that is going to last longer than a you know Polaroid photo takes, I mean, you're going to find that it's an amazing experience and a very blessed experience to be married and to have a family. One of the greatest blessings of my life, my husband and my kids, I love them so much. 
My life would be nothing without them. You got to hang in there, though, and you got to understand how God created marriage and the picture that marriage is of Christ and his church. It really is the truth, and more people need to hear it. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.